0: To episode 78 of The People in Kaichung*, 1630 AM, I'm Ben White.
1: And I'm Matthew Timmons. Our guests on this episode are Holly Myers and Deborah Asheim. Holly Myers is a writer and critic based in New Mexico. Her art writing and criticism has appeared in the Los Angeles Times, the LA Weekly, and Art Review, among other publications. She also publishes artist books under her new imprint, Then And.
2: I'm endlessly fascinated with how our sense of the world and of of time and of existence is such an interesting mishmash of major and minor. You know, like it's as infinitesimally minor as you could possibly imagine, and yet we can still draw narratives across history, you know. There's just an infinite variety of ways that we can create the flow of narrative.
0: Deborah Ashheim is a new media artist who lives and works in Los Angeles. This year, she is an artist in residence for the LA County Registrar Recorder County Clerk, working with them on voter education and outreach.
3: Whoever won the argument gets to say is the narrative and that's history and that's politics and that's everything. And so just that just that slight shifting of focus could be very quietly radical. That shifting of point of view is, um, is kind of more profound than, um, than we give it credit.
1: And at the end of the episode, we go out with a new track from Los Angeles artist and friend of the show, Jeremy Kennedy, with collaborator Chris Bryan Taylor.
0: The People features the voices and ideas that make up the cultural landscape of Los Angeles, the West Coast, and beyond. beyond. It's like a broken record, but here's the thing it's magically repaired.
1: Holly Myers and Deborah Ashby, welcome to the
0: people. Yeah, welcome. It's Thank you. Beautiful. Hi. <laughs> uh, so, Holly, you have a new book out called "Wild Rough Country." Do you want to tell us about it?
2: Yeah, uh, this is this is uh, the second in a series. It's kind of a new project of mine um, of books combining images and text. Uh, it's a little bit kind of looser and more of an intuitive process than a lot of the other things um, I've written. Um, and they're published through uh, my own imprint. Um, each book contains three different individual works, uh, but the through lines have a lot to do with landscape and the West and the experience of landscape and layers of, layers of experience. The physical landscape, the memory landscape, the historical landscape, and trying to explore these things in a, a less rules-based way, you know, not not kind of rooted in any particular genre. It's not a novel, it's not a story. It's kind of a hybrid of a, of a variety of approaches. Um, and it's a, it's a project I've kind of developed alongside my other work um, in order to kind of keep a brain space open. Uh, I think of it kind of as a sketchbook that goes alongside everything else that I do. And also a way to explore fascination with a variety of things, but I think what emerges the most particularly in this one is the landscape and gender and... Uh, violence and how kind of those things intersect
0: how do those things intersect
2: <laughs> to begin with Wild rough country which is the first of the three three individual pieces in this book uh, it begins with a quote uh, that uses it's from a, an old cowboy from the early 20th century and uh, kind of exploring the idea of the outlaw I guess in modern terms and and what what the outlaw is in reality separate from the mythology. I'm not so interested in the Western as a genre in the kind of movie sense or cinematic sense, but I am interested in the history of the West and its development and uh, how gender plays across that. And the idea that uh, this landscape breeds a kind of a rough person, which I actually, you know, is true probably, but also a rough person is there's an ugliness to that too. It's not uh, romantic. So, so it's kind of exploring imagery and landscape of uh, Wyoming, South Dakota, Colorado, New Mexico, kind of the Great Plains area.
1: Right. And, and these book projects, you you collage like images along with text, and I think in Wild Rough Country, you're Specifically, pulling from newspaper sources, yeah.
2: I have a kind of a endless fascination with small town newspaper crime stories. There's some really wacky ones out there, um, and some really, uh, you know, awful things. It's a real, it's a real interesting lens to look into the human psyche. Small yeah. town newspapers.
1: And the second section, um, right to pretty heroines. Tell us about how that that, proj- that part is. Yeah, that's instructed. a little
2: different. Um, that's kind of more of a, a conceptual experiment. I came across a book of F. Scott Fitzgerald's notebooks um, and essays, The Crack Up. The Crack up. Yeah. Um, and he kept these notebooks where he would just jot down sentences or fragments or things from other books that he didn't end up using or uh, fragments, and I was so enamored of of these and a lot of them were really beautifully written and you know just kind of astonishing but there was a whole lot of them about young girls (laughs) young women um and specifically 17 18 he he was very often kind of mentioning 18 year old girls and and once you start seeing that repeated so many times it, it just the pattern stood out to me um So I I pulled a lot of those and paired them with images of flowers, um, cut flowers, and at different stages of their uh, life and death.
1: Yeah.
2: (laughs) Yeah, and then the third piece um, is a little more, the middle one is is a little more, uh, its own kind of isolated bit. And the third one goes, echoes Wild Rough Country quite a bit, but more exploring uh, femaleness um, and across youth, kind of middle age, old age, um, but also with this element of landscape and flowers. And Like
3: it says on the back that these are stories, but then I was thinking, are they poems? And then I was thinking, I wasn't sure what a poem was. But they were really reminding me a lot of like Lydia Davis and Amy Hempel and some of these writers that have just really, really minimalist, but also so um, familiar from, exp- I, I think it's a female perspective, um, and so the, um and one of my favorite things was the places where you said so much was so little, so by far for me the standout is, um, it's just a bunch of people, and they're each in parentheses, and it's like an infant, a child, my favorite one was um, an inconvenient friend, and then you don't find out, can I tell, the, uh, give it away? Okay, sure. so you don't find out until the very end of the book where there's notes that those were all the um, the uh, victims of a female murder, and it's just amazing. It's just like, you know, you just go back and read them and read them. I, mean, I just am so in love with them, so mm-hmm. that one I don't even have to look at my bookmarks sure. to remember, um, mm-hmm. but then there, w- there was one that reminded me so much of these, um, I guess they often talk about those writers as as stylists, but I feel like that's... Uh, trivializing of them or something because it's so rich the way they're using language to conjure up a whole world. I had such a weird experience reading The Women and the Flowers um, during this particular moment with all the Jeffrey Epstein revelations coming out. It was really hard to sort those because I was actually sort of back and forth reading articles about that in The New Yorker or New York Times and then reading this. and, And then I got to one of the last ones, that just really hit me like a train. Um, she covers over real peculiarities with false ones she considers to be less revealing. That just seemed like such a incredibly intimate insight of what it is to be a young woman, and mm-hmm. like that, just that was just so concise of so many things that people don't understand. So that was,
2: and that's not Fitzgerald. That that was,
3: that was your thought. Right yeah, now. I figured. Yeah. At the end, you feel like he doesn't even want these women. He's like he's he's just like he's like acting it out. This like obligation to desire them, and it's like it's meaningless and it's like it's so weird, you know. Like like so that's where I think a word like a a a, a, a um, characterization like stylist is wrong because we think of that as just being about the surface, but I feel like it's so restrained. It's um it's making. It's, it's like when somebody's like a great actor and they don't say anything and you get the whole scene you know it, it gave me that kind of almost a cinematic or theatrical feeling
2: part of what I've really enjoyed about working in this mode um, of these these two books is leaving open space like you can create both visual and conceptual space within the context of a, a book you know that you can just have one sentence and make it a distilled and pristine sentence floating on a a page and and thinking about uh, I think these books are about space on a lot of different levels and one part of that is space across the page space within the physical object of the book space within landscape and then conceptual spaces of you know kind of mythologies and and mythos and uh, motifs and by playing with them in this way it's a little like collaging or like putting sounds together. You, it's not so much the process of writing in a linear or forward moving way as kind of patching things together and seeing what sticks and what sparks and what happens. It's, it's very intuitive as one goes and perceptual it was a project inspired by the Fitzgerald in a sense because I was so struck by his by these notebooks and the the intensity with which he could focus a single sentence you know aside from all the gender stuff and the young girls and it's a little creepy but on the whole like what he could do in one sentence is remarkable and I that got me to to a practice that I do every day now which is one sentence every morning of some kind of some Reflecting something outside of myself, so either a person or nature, but just not something about my own thoughts. It's some observation. So now I have whole books of just a single sentence, single sentence, single sentence. Um, and I do think it's sharpened my, it's, it's just good practice, you know, but all of those came from, from that book. It's going back to pull out the ones that I, uh, that relate thematically. You know, so it's just patching things together and seeing what sticks and sparks and gets bright.
1: Can I can I also ask you about uh, the book that that we we published on Insert Blanc Press, a cylindrical object on fire in the dark, um, because that book moves from kind of more um, sparse poetic kind of conceptual pieces to full-on short stories, like you know, yeah. developed characters, everything, and and it's interesting that that you then are doing these projects that are that are more like collage. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm just wondering what's driven you, because I know you were writing like short stories and novels. What's driven you to these more kind of collage or uh, conceptual practices?
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that book, uh, that was a big part of that book for me was tracing this arc from... And I've never, f- I, you you described it very well. I've never feel like I can get quite the right words to describe that transition from the most atomized and non-cohered to the most, to narrative. You know, how do you go from a single word to a sentence, to a paragraph, to a story or to character, There's a character somewhere in there, and then to a full fledged story at the end.
1: And that, just as a plug, I would say that that book is some a cylindrical object is like a a, a great test case and how one can do that Mm -hmm. i mean it like it's almost like it's a great book to see how that you can build these worlds from bits and atoms and pieces into full Mm -hmm. narrative like uh yeah narrative worlds with characters in the whole thing yeah so it's yeah
2: yeah i'm fascinated by that process there's one piece in there called family story in that case i had been It was, it also evolved out of a kind of exercise where I was just sitting down writing. um, I start I started with numbers. I thought one, two, three, four, and I just started writing random one sentence for one, you know, a bunch of one sentence sentences, and then a bunch of two sentence passages, and a bunch of three sentence passages, and four. But not with any at all sense of narrative, no sense, whatever. Um, and it was just an exercise and I put it away and I didn't think much about it and then a little while later I came back to it and I started pulling out sentences and all of a sudden it was one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen this this in my mind this story started to emerge from these random sentences that to me now is very emotional story about a family and you know but also from a the zero, one, two, three, four goes from a single object. I think the first one is just a sentence about a stone um, to one person, to two people, to a couple and a child. So it's it, it echoes that same process, but in human terms. Um, and seeing, maybe trying to be open to all different processes in this way. Like, like the unspoken thing here is I do write Novels as well. Actually, I spend most of my time writing very long things that no one ever sees, you know, for many, many years. Um, And that's what I do every day. So this is this is a little around the edges of that in my in my day-to-day experience. I think a lot of thematically, a lot of them interrelate, but process-wise, the novels are every have everything to do with getting up at the same time, writing the same number of hours. You know, like, it's, it's very plotting and methodical. And a lot of this work is a lot more spontaneous and intuitive. Um, and it's important to me to do both.
1: You're listening to The People on K Chung, 1630 AM. I'm
0: Matthew Timmons. And I'm Ben White. Remember, you can find us uh, at insertblancpress.net. Just click on the People at the top of the page. Or you can find us anywhere where you get your podcasts. Just search for the People Radio, find us, and now back
1: to our conversation with Holly Myers and Deborah Ashine.
2: So one thing I've thought a lot about in this this most recent work, Wild Rough Country, is is memory and the layers of memory that comprise experience. Um, on one level, personal memory; on another level, institutional memory, historical memory. Uh, and I know we've talked a lot about memory, Deborah, and and maybe you could talk a little about how that weaves into your own work.
3: I've been really interested in memory for like the past 15 years Um, and originally I worked autobiographically and then I became very interested in um, understanding memory in the brain so I worked with neuroscientists and sometimes I worked across disciplines like I did a lot of work with musicians to try to think about um, sort of uh, acoustical memory or sensory memory or something more somatic than just um, visual and semantic memory and Um, and then, but, um, but there's this part that I think it's actually like why sometimes when I first talk to people about memory, they would be like, oh my God, why would you want to make work about that? There's like a, almost like a nausea, like this kind of overwhelming vertigo feeling that has to do with memory and the self, you know, where memory is just this like dive into the self. And, um, and so I think what happened is at about like the five year mark or seven year mark in this project, even the um the structure of like the scientific method way of looking at memory you know making it something like more less subjective wasn't enough to make that not feel confining um and i was looking a lot at like where memory breaks down so when i say i'm interested in memory i'm also like really really interested in forgetting but lately i've been trying to find a kind of a collective memory so i've been more engaged with um well first it was architecture but now it's a lot more like history and trying to find a more vernacular history or wrestle with the, the shifting way that meaning keeps changing. And so like it's an interesting time right now where like all the physical monuments in the landscape, their meaning keeps changing to the point where it's like a dramatic conflict and we need to like tear them down even, you know. That's what I've been wrestling with, kind of like the suffocation of the self and not in a judgmental way, but the kind of this weird chapter where I'm not as interested in everyone else's autobiographical autobiography as trying to understand what happened and what do we think me it means that something happened or what are all the different ways that we can tell the story of what happened and what ones are left out and how it's important right now that some are left out you know and um and so when I was reading your book I was surprised at myself being curious about wanting to know what what parts were autobiographical because I thought I was like over that you know and then and I was like I was actually um really, you know, think, like, it was it was almost like the elusive sense of you threading through the book um, made me want to chase you a little bit, you know, whereas, like, if that had been more present, I would have been like, oh, another artwork about the artist. Okay, I know that's what art's about, you know. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, so that, I, that really resonated for me and the idea that, um, well, I feel like one thing that is a common thread in our work is that I'm, in a way, I'm sort of interested in like the haunting of the present by the past, and how spaces and landscape and um, structures and even just clothes and furniture are just like so haunted, and that they're you know. And I um, I live in a house full of my dead grandparents' furniture, and you know. And so I feel like there's this really strong sense of of ghosts in your work too. Sometimes they're literal ghosts, and sometimes they're ghosts that you've like reanimated from an archive or you know like a lot of there's dead people a lot so there's really literal ghosts but there are a lot of dead people (laughs) (laughs) but it's a very like haunted by memory landscape that I picture you driving through in your car even the photographs where there were like pictures of motel rooms and they weren't I mean I've seen many pictures of motel rooms and sometimes they're about a drama that happened in a motel room but yours really had a sense of like all these people passing through that motel room, and you just being one of the people, you know, and wondering like if I'd been one of the people. And there, so that so that's very interesting to me. This idea of like, I guess the constantly shifting nature of everything, including the past, and how there aren't really boundaries between um, then and now, and what we imagine the future to be.
2: Mm-hmm. I love motel rooms for that reason. I love transitional spaces of all kinds. Motel rooms uh, rental cars, planes, like anything that people move through. Cause I think I've, there's just the, this sheen, this patina of energy across everything. Um, and I find for myself, um, I'm less and less interested in, in myself and particularly in the writing. I don't have really, I have a really uneasy, relationship with me- memoir or wanting i I'd, I'd rather not say anything about myself at all not out of modesty or anything i just don't find myself near as interesting as the, the world um, i actually just finished separate from this a uh, uh, kind of a personal essay that is by nature about myself and it, it took me five years it was agonizing you know like to figure out how to how to say i um, you know, and I did journalism for many years, and that's convenient because you never have to put, uh, At least, I don't tend to like journalism where people put the I in there all the time, so I didn't. Um, but I am interested in perception and how we create the whole world of, of the internal experience. Um, and I do think there are ghosts of all sorts, yeah, through all that. It, as you were talking, it made me think of your drawings... Your drawings have that feeling a little, like a, a one or two people, I'm, I'm assuming that often you take them out of photographs, historical photographs that kind of float on this white page. Oh, yeah. Um, and there's a sense of a, a snippet, like a snippet of a collective memory or cultural memory or, or something that kind of floats frozen as what it is, but also disconnected from context, I find that quite beautiful, and they're beautiful drawings. They're they're so well executed.
3: Oh, thanks. Well, I think you would like the process because I actually find them in archives, and I I really am interested in like um, excavating images that would just definitely be lost. You know, so it's usually like somebody donated their archive to the you know Bancroft in Berkeley or something, and I'm going through like all the contact sheets, and there's some you know or La Raza photographers from the um, the Chicano Civil Rights Movement, and it'll just be a terrible picture, like super overexposed or something. You know, and it never got photographed, it, or it might be a part of a negative that was damaged. And then I'll just work on it a lot in Photoshop to bring it back. And there's just like these great th- things, you know. And and then I'm always waiting for somebody to like get in touch with me and say that's me on the poster, and you, you didn't have the rights or whatever. Yeah. But um, <laughs> but 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 they're you know they're like that's that's one of my favorite parts is just thinking well of the archive as like this. Um, thing that you that you can like go find buried treasures and bring them back to life and they would be lost and so Mm -hmm. I'm hoping that gets in the images a little bit like this kind of lost quality like that this I just pulled this person back from just being really disappearing you know Mm
2: -hmm. Mm -hmm. and there's something so beautiful about the the ordinariness of the person too I mean that these these big historical events happen you know you've done stuff about Nixon and um you know, big, acknowledged events, but a lot of those things are composed of ordinary people and and random moments. And and I am endlessly fascinated with how our sense of the world and of, of time and of existence is such an interesting mishmash of major and minor, you know, like it's as infinitesimally minor as you could possibly imagine. And yet, we can still draw narratives across history, you know, that Nixon was elected and did this and did that and did that and that led to this and this led to that and there's just an infinite variety of ways that we can create the flow of narrative across details.
3: So so the thing that I loved about these contact sheets, I feel like it relates to what you're saying. I'm not sure if I can make it relate, but I think it does. Is like um when you're looking at them and they're every second, the seconds before the, fa- like, so let's say it's a famous one, like the, like a famous one that I um, drew was, without permission, actually, but was um, the students marching for the free speech movement in Berkeley in 1964. Um, and, you know, that's like this iconic image, you know, it's Mario Savio and they have the, like a blanket or a bed sheet that says free speech and there's a woman in like a houndstooth little suit. But when you look at the contact sheets, there's all the seconds before and all the seconds after. So it's like you're walking up to the library and you walk up these steps that say engraved on them, Mario Savio steps, and it's all like iconic. It's already a monument. Everything's what everything means and what it meant. But then you're in this library just like 100 feet away and you see that 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 wasn't even ever the picture. They just cropped in. It's a really wide frame image, and there's all this other stuff going on, and it's scary. And they don't know if they're gonna all get arrested or kicked out of school. And like like none of it's like determined yet. You know, mm-hmm. it isn't the thing yet, and it could go in all these different directions. And the contrast between the experience you had, you know, 20 minutes ago before you had to check your backpack and all your stuff in this hallowed archive, and looking at this moment that was unfolding that was dangerous and weird and undetermined and could have meaning or could have no meaning it's like um it's time travel to me like you know it's the fact that we're always in time travel it isn't all spelled out in a clear way you know like everything could be important or nothing could be well, it's important. constantly unfolding right yeah, the narratives yeah are in a
0: constant state of of becoming right
3: and there isn't one narrative, and you could look look at it another day, and something else is the story, and then you could find out later that we don't look at it like that anymore, and you actually were really, really wrong that you looked at right. it like that. And, yeah,
0: or just ask someone standing next to that person what they thought about it, and that's a different narrative. Totally different.
3: Yeah. Yeah. yeah,
2: yeah. What I often try to do is find a thing that happened. It, it's often an explosive thing, like a, often literally like a car crash or a... a murder or something that happened and then slightly relocate the attention to a different spot like the the title story in a cylindrical object on fire in the dark it's about a war um, but the protagonist I think interprets the things that are going on around her a little wrong so it I, I became really interested in that story with this slight dislocation of perspective and what it means to read things wrong, um, or what it means to be like two steps outside of the murder of a famous person. You know, like I'm not really interested in the murder of a famous person, but uh, what about the guy who was passing by that room at that time? You know, how do you slightly dislocate um, the so-called meaningful moments Into, you know, what are the moments right next to it or right before it or right after it? Or because really the meaningful, the so called official meaningful moments is not as interesting often,
3: yeah. And well, I think it's further than that. I think that not looking at them is inherently kind of subversive because you're dethroning this one narrative Mm -hmm. that's like the one the agreed upon one that whoever won the argument gets to say is the narrative, and that's history and that's politics and that's everything, and so just that. Just that slight shifting of focus could be very quietly radical because you're you're kind of saying all every moment and every point of view is equally important, even if it's not the one that we celebrated or, or said was catalyst or something. You know, like I feel like that that shifting of point of view is um, is kind of more profound than um, than we give it credit.
2: Yeah, I think especially, too, in relation, at least in my mind, to feminism and um, the female perspective, that it's always a little off from the official. I mean, historically, it has always been off from the official perspective and to the great loss of the world, I think.
3: And even in terms of understanding events or the mm-hmm. way that we misunderstand them and we make our decisions of what we're going to do in the future based on the, this narrative that we've all like endorsed that may not have anything to do with like your own experience, if you were in that moment, if yeah. you lived then or anything you've ever experienced.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: You're listening to The People on K-Chung, 1630 AM. I'm Ben White.
1: And I'm Matthew Timmons. You can find us on Instagram by searching for the underscore people underscore radio. And you can also find us anywhere you find podcasts, including on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Overcast, etc. Check us out.
0: Yeah, go find us uh, and subscribe. Uh, and now back to our conversation with Holly Myers and Deborah Ashheim.
1: One thing I wanted
3: to talk, to, talk about, because um, I feel like, well, we're on audio and you can't see the book, but like there's a physical tactile quality about the book that was so related to what it's about. And it was really making me think about um, analog, like how, even though, you know, maybe you took digital images, they remind me of like Polaroids or snapshots or the kind of pictures that we used to take when we were, like, would go on vacation or when I f- go find old books of photos. And, um, and then I was thinking also about how when you get out of LA and you get out of the cities and when you're in like the places that you were talking about, like, you know, New Mexico or Wyoming and places like that, you suddenly realize that it, that our idea that we're living in this sort of post-bodies, digital, um, post-architecture, you know, virtual future, it's kind of a construct. It's not really something about 2019. It's something we've all, like, agreed to because you're back in the physical world, and it's full of things, and and you're really aware of entropy and things breaking down and, how you know, how much space there is between one place and another and dirt is everywhere and, and the quality of the light. And so it was making me think of that, and I wanted to just ask you about, like, um well, you used to live here and now you live,, um, you know, in a place where you spend hours driving around and and, and you're very aware of, of time. and does it um, well, wh- what do you think about um, how do you feel like you're you live in a different time than when you lived here? because when I live here sometimes I think um, that I that maybe, um, I live in like an imaginary idea of the future here.
2: <laughs> <laughs> it definitely, was a big shift for me getting out of LA. I love LA. Um, I thought of it maybe not less in technological terms than in spatial terms. Where living in a city like LA, you feel like you're the center of the world a little bit. Like everything important is happening here. All the important people are here. Um, you know, all the technology is here. Everything is here. And for a long time, that seemed like, yeah, I'm a part of that. (laughs) Um, But leaving it, I've found incredibly refreshing and liberating, and probably part of it is what you're saying, those kind of mental conceptions that tend to go along with technologies that kind of coagulate in urban spaces um, and a kind of economic reality in an urban space. Certainly, um, I moved back to Santa Fe, New Mexico, where I grew up, Um, and now live outside of town so I live on five acres so that's a different spatial world (laughs) you know you don't see houses outside of my window Um, and I love I love that I I feel like it it shifted my brain in the right way Um, and I love these these wide open spaces even when I lived in LA I loved the drive back to New Mexico I love the Mojave and the just this long, open, empty 10 for ages and ages, or I 40. Sorry, I 40. 10 is through Phoenix. Um, I love those big, open, empty spaces that are totally forgotten. Um, I'm a lot of this, uh, a lot of the stuff in wild, rough country in my mind. Kind of coagulates around the Cheyenne, Wyoming area. I have a uh, kind of endless fascination with Cheyenne is a really pretty dumpy little town in a lot of ways but it has this amazing history uh dating back to the 18 it was founded in the late 1860s as a point on the railroad the Union Pacific Railroad um so that exists there at one point it was the highest millionaires per capita in the world lived in Cheyenne um because of all the cattle ranching uh and now you go there, and it's just, it feels, yeah, forgotten by technology. It's gritty, and it's sad-looking, but also, like, real. People live there. You know, I spent one evening last fall in a, this really dumpy little Thai restaurant. <laughs> like a Thai restaurant in a cowboy town, that's one of the lines in, in there. And, uh, this guy walked in and this line is in the book also, uh, red sweatsuit, red hat, red tennis shoes and neck tattoos. That's the line in the book. Mm -hmm. And like that guy exists, you know, I mean like that guy is, has his whole life going out there. I'm fascinated by what things are outside of the center of the world where where you, maybe as you're saying, you can't conceptualize yourself into technology. You're, you're still living, I'm not gonna say it's more real at all. I don't wanna like romanticize it, um, but maybe it's a more tactile in a different way. I don't know, I, I'm, I love forgotten kind of spaces. And I mean, that's part of what I loved about LA too. It's It's got that, but within the city, S- spatially and architecturally, there's a lot of empty space here. And it's maybe why LA, LA really resonated with me. But um, now I feel like I I do better with more empty spaces, not in an urban setting. I'm not sure if that answers your question about technology.
3: It sort of did, because I've been thinking about it as, like, the sort of promise of technology as kind of an, es- an escape from, like, the like banal, like... Um, uh, 20th century, you know, reality of, like, having bodies and living in buildings and go, get it, having to get from place to place, you know, it seemed to promise this, like, smooth, seamless, like, ma- you know, sort of magical other way we could live. And, and like, one thing that I really like about the juxtaposition of these often sort of humble photographs with your really spare texts is it sort of, like, reminds me that that's a, const- a construct, not a thing that changed about the world, you know, and um, and I think sometimes I'll think like, oh, well, I just remember when the world was like that, because I'm older, and it's not like that for people now, but of course, you know, it's still, we, there's it, there's still distance between places, and we still have bodies, and we feel things with them, and they need stuff, and they break, and mm-hmm. you know, when we drive around in in cars and live in houses that get older and break and you know like that's entropy is still like one of the main laws of everything no matter how much we want to pretend everything can be seamless and new and um get a new get new you know computers and iPhones all the time and replace everything before we have to actually see it have any visible signs of breaking but everyone's iPhone screen is broken whenever They hand you their phone. (laughs) And so (laughs) it kind of was like more reminding me, like it didn't even seem like a choice between LA and that. It was more just like, well, we still have bodies and it's still like this outdoors and this is still what things look like when the wind beats them over time and the sun. You know, it it, it kind of was more like a a recognition that, well, that hasn't fundamentally changed just because we. like kind of got seduced by this fantasy that we were these post-body futuristic humans living in the 21st century in cities, you know. And I think that relates a lot to the themes of my work because not the work I'm doing now as much about collective memory, but um, I was very, very when I w- when you and I were talking a lot, I was really involved in ideas about um, thinking about the future in the 60s, you know, in the mm-hmm. mid-century. Visions of the future that that didn't really come to pass, but that everybody was so sure was how we live now. I, and
2: yeah, those wonderful drawings of the buildings, like space age buildings, that now just look like '60s buildings. They, yeah, they're
3: yeah. they're old. Actually, they <laughs> want to yeah. tear them down. Like modern used to mean new, and now modern means old. <laughs> and, and so, um, so there was a way that it, that that conversation kept threading through my mind as I was as I was looking at the words and the pictures together, because it was really like, it's kind of like. You can think you're this kind of post-body, post-human until anything breaks on your body. And then you're like, oh, shit, I still am made of this stuff. Yeah, yeah. I'm not an I person. I'm a person. <laughs> so that was like, I really like that it's a book, the way that the photos remind me of um, of analog photos, even if they weren't. like That somehow seems really important. I want to mention that for people who maybe mm-hmm. can't see it right now.
2: I definitely wanted to find a middle space between super polished and super raw. I mean, I, years and years ago, when I first started thinking—actually, it's a second piece in the first book, *Marine*. Um, when I first started thinking of doing these, I had initially thought of almost like a zine, more like a Xerox, and I decided that just seemed a little thin or something. I mean, we talked about this matter. Or self-conscious, maybe. Yeah, maybe like not quite enough of something. Um, I wanted you to be able to see the pictures a little better. But um, I really like what we've kind of hit on is this, this middle space where the pictures are a little grainy. You know, they're yeah. not, it's not a super polished art book. You know, hard, You know, they're not meant to be art photographs. They're meant to be um, just visual documents.
3: So there's something I'm desperate to ask you.
1: It's about all three
3: books, so I don't remember which one it's in. But at one point in one of the books, there's an asterisk, and then it says, this is true. Yeah. What does that mean, and what does that imply about the rest of the three books?
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, it means just exactly what it says. This is actually true. It happened. That that The passage you're referring to is uh, a woman who – there's a coffee shop I often go to on Sundays in, in New Mexico. And almost every Sunday she's an older woman with white hair and she always comes by herself every day and always reads the New York Times every day, every Sunday. Um, and then sometimes she reads Shakespeare and, and that is true. It happened.
3: <laughs> but so much of the other things in the books are nonfiction. So
2: Yeah, yeah, I guess. Uh, why is that
3: more true?
2: I guess I'm intrigued by, I don't know, creating some ambiguity around that is really interesting and slippery and, like really it it doesn't, to a reader you would have, no, it doesn't matter which it is because you don't know and, um, but there is a compulsion to want to know. I guess it's like, I would like to play with that a little rather than reveal myself.
1: (laughs) And also that bit, the woman who reads the the New York Times every day, and then Shakespeare, it almost seems conjured. Like you're, you it 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 just seems like you conjured that character, because quite frankly, that that character exists makes me feel more comfortable about the world that I am. Yeah, I'm in. exactly. Me so too. Like, I feel like
2: she's. Yeah. So it's even she's better. holding that, something down for all of yeah, us. Yeah.
1: It is actually true. It's like yeah, even better yeah, that yeah, way. Yeah. yeah.
2: yeah. Um, and in a lot of these. The, there are these fragments that you know I kind of hold on to out of memory, like the guy with a red sweatshirt, red pants, and red shoes and red hat. Um, there's something to me just so beautiful about that image with the neck tattoos. I I, I I have no way of explaining why it's beautiful to me, but it's beautiful to me that it existed. And I guess it's similar with the woman with the New York Times. <laughs>
3: I mean, I think I know what you mean because sometimes, like, well, I'll, like, I make a lot of drawings from things that I photographed and observed and also from things that I find. And sometimes it, and people will say to me, like, well, why don't you just change that? Or my lawyer says it a lot, like, like <laughs> you don't need to get the copyright permission if you just change that. And, uh-huh. and there is sometimes there's this thing, even though I know that I'm, it's all, of course, it's still my thoughts and my perspective and, I'm making an argument whenever I make something that this happened instead of this, or I, see, I want you to see it this way instead of this. Like, I know I'm doing that, whether I'm even aware of it. But that's what I loved about the. That's what I wanted to ask you because then there are things where I'm like, oh, but this isn't just my opinion. This really happened. I really saw it. It yeah, really was yeah, just like yeah. that. It, like, if you that were standing important. next to me, you wouldn't argue with me about what it meant, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and, and I, and like, no one talks about that because they're both, they, we have such a, blunt instrument just calling them both non-fiction or journalistic or documentary but one of them is like um you know I'm showing you how I saw this and the other one is like no this was really dude this happened just like <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah
2: yeah well you in, in all those layers of personal memory cultural memory collective memory there is um also the conceptual space that is created by art itself I mean that is created I mean, that can have actually happened, the woman with the New York Times. But it also exists, it has its own reality in that book as fiction on some level. Um, and I'm, I love how these, how fictive spaces exist interwoven in the mind and in the experience with every other space. You know, like novels that I've read that I love are real, you know, more real to me than a lot of things that have happened So I I like playing with that.
3: that Well, one thing I was thinking about that is why some of these things are some of the, um, even things that were just things that you observe, but they, I feel like um, the way that they are affect me is because they, you transform them into metaphor, even if they aren't metaphor in a literary sense, like that woman, uh, like Mm -hmm. that's why she's so important, right? Because she stands for something else. But, but I, but, um, but not in a, the way that they teach you in English class, like actually the way they teach you in anthropology. So um, when I was an anthropology student, the one of the most memorable things I ever read was about how um, they used metaphor in Western Apache. It was actually, I remember the author, it was Keith Basso, and he was talking about it's not like just a device to make you think of things. That The really important thing is that you have to complete the thought with something from your own observation. And so that was how metaphor was really different than like a simile, you know, mm-hmm. was that like it would be an incomplete thought and you would have to take your own experience and you know like like an example he gave was um raven what a boy you are it's from blake or something and um and you had to think of ravens and think of boys and what you knew about them both and you had to figure it out and i feel like a lot of your um observations they do that but the thing that was amazing was he said in in western apache it wasn't just a flowery speech. It was to teach somebody something or to help them see something about the world. So the example in the article was about a girl being like a butterfly, which we would just think that meant she was beautiful or whatever. But it was actually a form of critique. Her grandmother was basically criticizing her for going out to a dance and leaving her younger siblings. And so you had to think about a butterfly and how it just flits around and, and lives really short and, and doesn't have any gravitas. And, you know, it was actually a, a diss and the girl knew it and she <laughs> went in her room and sulked. And, um, and I feel like there's that process um, in some of these the things that stick with me because I have to think really hard about what I know about the world and finish the thought. And so it's like a creative act that we're collaborating on. That mm-hmm. was That's um, that's what I love about um, when you say it's true because it also is this other thing that's this um, communication between two people that they complete together that's maybe true or not but is from some other kind of logic.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
3: That's interesting.
2: I mean, how do you approach that in your own well, okay, so Every like work or draw, yeah, or yeah. Specific. So
3: I'm hoping that um, that I can find some space that's in between things that I remember and how I like filter the world through this like library or whatever archive of images and experiences in my mind, and something that happened to somebody else that I maybe could like never know or connect with. And so whether it's like like that's why that's why I was interested in architecture because. Um, buildings are something that I have a really personal experience to and a building might be like a person to me the way a person in my life is or some buildings things happen to me in them or it might be a house I lived in even or something like that which is like so intimate but at the same time it's an actual objective thing in the world that somebody else might have just as much of a relationship with you know like mm-hmm. like I'm home because I see the theme building at LAX but everybody sees it and it also didn't used to exist and I met the structural engineer that designed it and you know all these people have it's got all this layered of other people's meaning but that doesn't make it less personal and it can still be like my symbol of LA even though it's a shared one and so um, but I think history can be like that too like that's why I, why I started with Watergate because Watergate was the first thing that like rocked my world that happened outside of my family like it wasn't a grandparent dying or anything but it changed the world and when I talk to other people that are old enough they remember you know a similar um catalytic experience but it didn't happen to them you know and I guess if you're old enough the Kennedy assassination or increasingly September we have that with September 11th or the Challenger explosion so those are those are just where I started looking for something that's like the same in between quality that your work has where it means something something means something to me and something means something to you and there's like a bridge and, and even though we couldn't know each other's, um, the experience can be shared. Mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Well, Deborah, Holly, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, guys. Thank
2: you for having us.
1: You've been listening to The People on K-Chung, 1630 AM. I'm Matthew Timmons.
0: And I'm Ben White. Remember to find us on Instagram at the underscore people underscore radio. Uh, you can also find us anywhere else where you find your podcast. Just search for The People Radio. And our theme song, as always, is Ock by Lewis Keller. And we're going to go out with a song from Morning Candy by Chris Bryan-Taylor
1: and Jeremy Kennedy off their forthcoming cassette from FMSMPRC coming out this October. And you can find FMSMPRC on Bandcamp. And the name of the song is Day Rave iatek ish outra Tudo over how do you feel? A unbelievable how do you feel? after eating